mental health problems can affect any one of us at any point in our life, either directly or through affecting people who are very close to us. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. I have the pleasure of having Dr. Vikram Patel join me today. Uh, He's a psychiatrist, Harvard professor, and a global advocate for mental health. He's studied and worked all over the world addressing this problem. Uh, He's done vast research on the topic. Dr. Patel, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today and look forward to a great conversation. Thank you for having me. So first, what got you interested in behavioral health? Well, that's a long time ago. I I actually um, trained in psychiatry in 1987. Um, And uh, my memory is a little fuzzy for that period. But what I can remember is that I was always very fascinated by by the brain uh, as a medical student. And neurology seemed to be the more respectable of the options that I had as a specialty to train in. But I was quite disillusioned, really, by what seemed to me, you know, a grand theater of neurological examination and diagnosis that was typically followed by no real interest uh, in, in what kind of care should be provided unless there was a shotgun remedy like a medication uh, that could be prescribed. And I was sort of somewhat disillusioned that the person with the problem uh, somehow wasn't really at the center of attention. On the other hand, when I did my psychiatric uh, residency, I found that, in fact, the person was very much at the center uh, of of the attention during the rounds, during the clinical assessment, and so on. And that then led me to be much more interested in behavioral health, uh, really through my interest both in the brain, but also in a more person-centered approach uh, to healthcare. So you gave a very popular TED Talk in 2012 on global mental health. Uh, It was a very important topic, obviously. It was well-received, being viewed over a million times. Uh, and we'll put a link up to this because everybody really needs to see it. But I want to talk about this a little bit. And as we get through some of the data uh, from 2012, you can let us know how things have improved over the, the past seven years. You talk about the life expectancy gap of people with mental illness. that could be as much as 20 years. Talk about that a little bit. The life expectancy gap for people with mental health problems when compared with other people in their own community or context, in my mind, is one of the most significant scandals in global health. Because consider the fact that these conditions, like schizophrenia, for example, are not in and of themselves lethal conditions. And so the fact that an individual with schizophrenia has a life expectancy that is 20 years less than another individual in his or her context without the same illness can only be attributed to how society has responded to that person's illness because the illness itself is not a lethal one. It's, a, it's really an indicator of the profound and pervasive neglect to the social psychological and medical needs of people with schizophrenia that explains their premature mortality. In some developing countries, that life expectancy gap is even greater. Uh, In many parts of the world, the average life expectancy of people with intellectual disability, with serious mental illness, uh, with dementia, 
is less than 50% of compared with other people of the same age group in that particular community. Uh, and so this is a really major crisis in global health, not just global mental health. It's a big crisis in global health. Uh, and, and this really calls for urgent action uh, to address the determinants of premature mortality in these groups of individuals. You talk about the DALI, the Disability Adjusted Life Year, and that's a way to kind of gauge that gap? Well, the DALI is a, a measure of the burden of a health condition. It really brings together two different kinds of impacts that a health condition has. One is on life expectancy. How soon does a, that particular health condition uh, end your life? Um, and the second is uh, the impact on the life that is lived with that condition in terms of the disability uh, impairment in daily life that that condition produces. And so mental disorders are profoundly disabling. They account for some amount of premature mortality. And when these two impacts are put together as a DALI uh, estimate, they are amongst the leading causes of the burden of disease globally in all countries, but particularly so in those countries that are uh, at a slightly more advanced stage of their demographic transition. That is to say, uh, there is a larger proportion of young people and adults in the population. Would you say in your journey around the world looking at this, are less developed countries more critical or is there a bigger stigma there than there is in the developed world just as far as how people are treated? When I compare low and middle income countries with high income countries, the first thing that strikes me is that there is really no one type of country. Uh, there is no really one type of situation that captures the enormous diversity of low and middle income countries. Uh, for example, at one end, you might have a city like Shanghai, which is, uh, for any casual observer, an incredibly sophisticated and highly developed city. And at the other end, you might have a city like Kinshasa, uh, which is clearly at, a, at the opposite end in terms of the uh, social development infrastructure. You can't really you know, lump these contexts together into some artificial category uh, like developing countries. So there's, first of all, huge heterogeneity. But there's also huge heterogeneity within countries. So even though the U.S. is a high-income country, there is enormous inequality in the access to quality care uh, and ultimately health outcomes within the country. And a lot of that is patterned on historic inequalities uh, and structural inequalities, for example, to do with poverty, race, uh, and, and, and immigrant, immigrant status. So I think it would be fair to say there are challenges uh, in terms of delivering mental health care in all societies, and all societies, to some degree or the other, are developing when it comes to mental health. Um, and amongst the most important barriers are stigma, but stigma is something which is also universal. It's not the case that it's only in one context or, or the other. I would say one thing about stigma. It's often assumed that stigma is simply because people don't understand mental health problems. That is only part of the problem. Um, another very big part of the problem of stigma is that historically mental health care has been a kind of model of care that is associated with a lot of shame, a lot of fear, uh, and indeed even disgust. Uh, for example, 
being carted away by, uh, by, by a police van, being incarcerated in a mental hospital, by being sedated to the point where you're unable to walk properly. These are all the sorts of images. And these are not just images from a very uh, historical past, but these are actually images that continue uh, uh, to prevail even today. This is also an important source of stigma uh, attached with mental health problems and particularly mental health care. Uh, the other end of stigma is the way society or other people view the condition and the person as well. Absolutely. There is tragically also stigma due to the way people with serious mental illness in particular uh, have been treated by society. It strikes me it's really incredible that, for example, yesterday I was in San Francisco and I was walking uh, around uh, in, in, in that beautiful city, but it's so obvious that there are so many individuals who are living rough on the streets and who clearly have a significant mental health problem. And it struck me that we were just walking past these numerous individuals uh, in obviously a state of great distress. Um, and it struck me that if that was an individual having a cardiac arrest uh, on the street uh, or an obvious physical health problem, there would be a crowd of people coming to try and provide some degree of support and an ambulance would be called, etc. But this was, of course, mental illness, and people simply walked past as if it was just an invisible sight uh, on, their, on, on the streets. And I, I think that's another example of how we've become inured to suffering due to mental illness. Partly it's stigma, partly it's because, really, we couldn't care less. Uh, another big part of this show is substance use. In other parts of the world, if, as you've traveled and researched, is that a manifestation other places aside from the West and, and developed, more developed countries? Yeah, I would say substance use is, 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 is definitely a source of suffering and illness in many parts of the world. As you can imagine, uh, substance use is, you know, the, the use of substances is very strongly uh, associated with contextual factors, for example, you know, regulatory policies, criminal justice policies, uh, cultural factors, etc. For example, you know, I, I believe that alcohol use conditions are much less a problem in Islamic countries because they're simply not available in those countries, alcoholic beverages. On the other hand, opiates are a very common uh, substance use problem in the same countries because opiates may, may be growing uh, in, in those countries and there is a much wider acceptance in the community on the use of opiates. So substance use disorders do exist in all societies, but the substance that is being used in an addictive way can quite often vary. But by and large, people are using these to cover up and to numb the mental illnesses that they're dealing with? Uh, I don't think it's always the case that people are using substances to cover up a mental illness. Um, I do think it's the case that substance use problems and mental illness often co-occur and they feed each other. But I think most substance uh, use occurs usually in adolescents and young people when, uh, when, when essentially the mental health, the personality, the, the brains of, of adolescents are still works in progress and they're far more likely uh, to, to, to get hooked onto addictive substances. Um, in part, this has got to do a lot with uh, what we now understand is the neurobiology of dependence, how these substances really create a kind of a dependence at a neurocircuitry level for that substance. And, uh, and that's how dependence ultimately develops. This is one of the reasons why um, the earlier in life that you begin to use a addictive substance, the greater is the risk that you will become dependent on that substance. Do you feel that 
all of these I mean, substance use, depression, anxiety. I mean, do you feel that it's a disease of the brain? Well, ultimately, at some level, it is. It can't be happening in the ether uh, around, our, around our head. It's certainly happening somewhere within our brains. However, that should not be conflated to, uh, to, to interpreting that these are purely brain diseases. Um, in, it's very clear to me that um, all mental health problems involve a neurological substrate. Um, uh, all substance use problems involve a neural substrate. However, all of them also can only occur when there are specific social, environmental uh, circumstances or determinants that are at play and that are interacting uh, with our brains. A very important example of that is the fact that all, almost every mental and substance use problem um, has a strong association with adversities in childhood. And it's very clear that the adversity in childhood has, is acting as a risk factor uh, for the later life development of mental health problems. And we now know that in part, that is mediated through the fact that adverse experiences in childhood affect the developing brain in quite profound ways, uh, and that those effects on the brain may enhance vulnerability to the development of mental health problems later in life, particularly in the context of social difficulties that the individual may experience uh, during later life. And everyone that I talk to in, in all the research I, I uh, <clears throat> dive into, childhood trauma is... it's. It, it seems like it is just universal with people that develop mental illness, and a lot of people don't buy that, you know, model. But uh, do you see that pretty much everywhere that you go? That there are, in a lot of cases, trauma when you're little. Absolutely, I think if there was one, you know, if there was an equivalent of tobacco um, as a risk factor for chronic diseases in the mental health space, it would be adverse childhood experiences. But what I will say is that when one uses words like trauma or maltreatment, the image one has is of really quite extreme forms of abuse and violence against children. But what we often forget is the much more pervasive, much more common and almost as damaging, if not more damaging forms uh, of adverse childhood experiences are simply neglect. And neglect can occur in, across the social classes. It can occur in very different ways, and it can be quite invisible. Um, you know, it isn't the sort of thing that, for example, social workers are likely to pick up very easily uh, because it's got to do with emotional uh, connections that the parent or parent figures have towards their children, but literally the love that parents show their, their, their children. Uh, and of course, as you know, also that parents don't love all their children equally. And this explains that within families, why is it that sometimes uh, one child may go on to develop uh, a mental health difficulties and others may not? So I think those much more intangible kinds of, um, of nurturing environments that children need uh, are the ones that we should be paying more attention to because too much of our conversation focuses on the more extreme forms of trauma and abuse that typically are much more visible and lead children uh, to often be removed from their homes. When, when someone does get the care that they need in uh, dealing with a mental illness, uh, do you, have you found or, or seen that someone might put the pieces together that they did have a bad childhood when they might not be thinking of it uh, when they were an adult? 
Well, I think what you're speaking to is the idea that there could be some recall bias. That is to say, when you're an adult with a mental health problem, you're more likely to search for meaning by looking into your childhood and more likely to recall events that otherwise you might not have thought twice about because you have a mental health problem. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Yeah, that's certainly possible. You know, I, I, I can't say for sure whether that means it's not relevant, though. Um, you know, it, it, it's important to remember it isn't a it isn't a kind of A equals to B or leads to B kind of simple relationship uh, because we're not simply products of what happened during our early years of life. There's much that happens uh, during those early years that can also help build resilience, help uh, create pr- protective scaffolding. So that, uh, you know, in spite of having had an unhappy childhood, most people, I think, will land up in reasonably good mental health. Um, It's usually an interaction between multiple factors, unhappy childhood, perhaps some genetic vulnerability, um, a continuation of unhappiness into adolescence, uh, and then very difficult social uh, risk factors in your immediate context. For example, losing a job or relationship. It's the sum of all of these that need to be used to understand why a particular individual develops a mental health problem as compared to another. I often think of mental health problems really not as simply diagnoses, but the stories of our lives. And in as much that each of us has a very unique story, a single model will never explain why mental illness occurs at a population level. As far as suicide in young people, uh, you mentioned that it's one of the leading causes of death uh, for young people around the world, uh, would you say that's still the case? Absolutely. I think suicide is not only one of the leading causes of death in young people around the world, but actually in some contexts, the suicide rates in young people are rising, for example, here in the U.S. Um, And I think uh, we should be very concerned as a society to try and urgently understand why that's happening. You know, right now we have a lot of speculation, um, but we, what we really need is some real definitive answers so that we can really begin to target uh, uh, young people in a way that we can help reduce suicide rates by targeting the risk factors uh, that are leading them to, to, to attempt suicide. Now, childhood stresses can be very different no matter who you are, where you are in the world, but the results can be very similar. So you showed an image of a young girl that was uh, had her ankle chained to a tree that was in a low-developed country with poverty and uh, the lack of basic human needs. Uh, and then, but you could take, let's say, for example, some a child from the U.S. that could have a situation where they're slighted on social media or a bullying situation really two vastly different situations uh, to different traumas, but the effect could be the same and the end result, unfortunately, could be similar in that they take their own lives. Absolutely. The effect could be very similar. Let's take take the two scenarios and I want to try and explain to you how you can't simply look at uh, an image and, and come to a conclusion about what impact that might have on a person's mental health. The girl, I think that you're referring to an article that was published in Nature, where there was a photograph of a young girl um, in an African context who was chained to a tree. Uh, and quite likely she was chained to the tree because she had an intellectual disability. Uh, and the parents would have done this maybe for her own protection, for her security, because there are no other services, for example, daycare centers or childcare places where a child with intellectual disability can go in that context. However, 
It's perfectly possible that the same child was given a lot of love and affection by the parents, was, was treated as an incredibly precious member of the family. We can't tell from that photograph. And it's quite possible that the intellectual disability, such as it was, was in fact not associated with a mental health problem. Um, whereas the child who was slighted in a rich country uh, on social media, maybe living in a family where the parents are unloving, uh, where uh, in fact at school, he or she is being bullied by other kids and therefore is quite isolated. Um, and therefore that child develops a mental health problem, even though on the surface, that child actually has a much better socioeconomic circumstance uh, than the child in the African context. And so again, one really must think of each child's story as a very unique one, one in which a variety of different known risk and protective factors are operating across the life course to help us explain why one particular child would go on to have good mental health, enjoy good mental health, whereas another child with superficially similar circumstances, such as, for example, being slighted on social media, uh, actually goes on to develop a mental illness. You say that there's, there's, there is speculation about why, why this happens. Do you have a, a feeling on, on why childhood trauma causes such a problem, especially for you know, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, middle school ages? Well, the most likely explanation as to why childhood trauma causes mental health problems in adolescence and young adulthood is got to do with how neglect, maltreatment, and abuse affect the brain during the years of life when it is most plastic. What does that mean? We now know that the brain is incredibly responsive to the environment right through life, but particularly so in the first decade of life. And so the environment's in which uh, a child finds itself are going to be profoundly influential uh, on the development of his or her brain. And so if the environment is emotionally unstimulating, for example, uh, then it is quite likely that a child will end up having delays or impairments in their cognitive development, which in turn would make the child less able to deal with stresses and challenges that are inevitable when that child becomes an adolescent. And so then goes on to develop mental health problems because of perhaps the impaired cognitive abilities. Another kind of mechanism could be that fear uh, and toxic environments, stressful environments in childhood alter the child's uh, responsiveness to stress in adulthood so that faced with similar stressful circumstances, the reaction of the child or now the young adult uh, is one that resembles a mental health problem rather than one that is associated with more uh, proactive problem solving and resolution of that problem and being able to move on uh, uh, without it affecting one's mental health adversely. We've, t we've talked so far about a lot of causes for mental health and damage to the brain and uh, on the subject of lack of treatment, which seems to be as much a part of the actual disease itself and getting, getting people well. You say in that in your TED talk, 50% of people in even the developed countries don't get the care that they need, and then other parts of the world, it can be as much as 90%. So let's talk about the lack of treatment a little bit. For me, the most important challenge um, when it comes to treatment and care 
is the fact that we have conflated treatment and care with only one kind of approach to a large extent when it comes to resourcing, and that is psychiatric care or care delivered by mental health professionals more generally. And that typically translates into care that is delivered in hospitals or private offices. Um, It typically means care that is often very medicalized, that requires diagnoses so that insurance companies will reimburse you. Um, That means classifying people's suffering into diagnostic categories that may not actually fit that well with their suffering. Um, And then most care in most parts of the world simply comprises a prescription. Of course, we know that that is not what mental health care should look like. Um, Mental health care for the vast majority of people is really strengthening the psychological and social supports that they need in order to promote recovery. Um, For example, psychological therapies that promote skills development to address mental health problems and social interventions to address some of the social determinants. We've turned the entire mental health care system on its head by privileging uh, the highly specialized and highly expensive biomedical approaches instead of really uh, emphasizing the psychosocial approaches that are more community-facing. And it is the latter which is lacking in all societies, and it is there where I believe the greatest attention and investment needs to be made. You talk about, uh, you know, you can look at another disparagement where in America or Europe, I don't don't know about Europe, but I know in America that the lack of resources and the lack of insurance can cause – someone to not get well because they can't afford treatment. Uh, is, do, do you see that in the other developed countries? Is, is insurance and support better than it is in the U.S.? Or how does that play out? Well, I think, again, health system contexts are too varied for me to provide a kind of offer, a, a simple answer to that complex question. So what I will say is amongst rich countries, um, which have a strong, uh, uh, you know, let's say developed countries in the world, the U.S. is an outlier um, in that it relies on insurance to pay for, for such a large proportion of health care. Um, and insurance companies, therefore, uh, really have enormous, uh, I, I would say, uh, you know, extraordinarily enormous influence on how mental health care is delivered. And in fact, it's become a real problem. For example, the need to always have a diagnosis, trust on you, in order to be reimbursed for care. But most of the high-income countries actually have a tax-funded universal health coverage system in which uh, you're not forced to have the diagnoses, uh, and you're not forced to provide only a certain kind of care which is reimbursable, uh, because this is now universal health coverage. Uh, the provider is reimbursed uh, for the quality of care, and that often means uh, uh, necess- you know, often privileging uh, psychosocial interventions uh, as is needed by that individual. In low- and middle-income countries, again, the, the range is enormous. Some countries have universal health coverage, uh, similar to say, Western Europe. Others, like India, have a very fragmented healthcare system like the U.S., where a few people are able to enjoy very high-quality but very specialist-oriented care uh, uh, paid by the insurance companies, uh, whereas the majority of people rely on very poor-quality care uh, uh, delivered by the public sector. But even that care is very specialist-oriented, typically in hospitals. When it comes to community care, it will be fair to say that more than 90% of the world's people do not have access to community-based alternatives to mental health care. Unbelievable. Uh, th- this idea of task shifting uh, is truly, uh, it's, it's simple, but it is very profound. Uh, since 2012 or whenever 
that was uh, an idea. Uh, how has it been received, and is it being put into action? You're right, it is an idea, but the idea doesn't come from mental health. Um, there's two important historical footnotes, I should say. Uh, first of all, that the idea of task sharing comes from other areas of, uh, of medicine and global health, like maternal health care, where the shortage of obstetricians uh, that was leading to very high levels of maternal mortality was addressed by training community-based midwives uh, to provide safe uh, delivery. Uh, you know, China's barefoot doctor is another great example of task sharing that goes back 50 years ago. Uh, it's also important to remember that the idea of task sharing put to mental health care was also prevalent in high-income countries uh, right up until the 70s when, you know, they were called paraprofessionals. I think what's happened in the global south has been the rediscovery of this approach and learning from other areas of global health uh, to the delivery of psychological and social interventions. About 15 years ago, it was an ideology. Today, there's nearly 100 randomized controlled trials, which, as you know, is one of the most uh, robust experiments to evaluate and test the safety and effectiveness of novel ways of delivering healthcare. We now know that this, this approach is hugely acceptable uh, to target communities, and it's extremely effective in promoting recovery from a whole range of different mental health conditions. Uh, and so now the real task is no longer about asking questions, does it work, but really figuring out how do we scale up this incredibly cost-effective uh, way of delivering um, evidence-based interventions for mental health problems to scale. There is a shortage of uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors across the world, especially in developing countries. Uh, but there is also a, a big lack, and I can only speak for America, equally a big lack of, of those professionals here as well. But do you think that task sharing would ever work in the United States? Absolutely. It's already working. Okay. Um, you know, if you go to and many of the nonprofits around this country, which are using peer support workers as one great example of task sharing, um, they're already deploying peer support workers in, uh, to, to support people with serious mental illness, for example. Uh, community health workers are already being deployed in, in, in contexts like New York City, for example, uh, to provide uh, first responder care for people with mental health problems. So task sharing is already occurring typically in the not-for-profit uh, uh, sector, but also in those sectors where cities uh, are, are taking a lead role in providing mental health care to their populations. Uh, I think what we need is to move from pilot demonstration projects, which are often occurring in a fragmented way from the rest of the mental health care system, to creating a fully integrated mental health care system where everybody with a mental health care problem has access to a frontline worker uh, to provide community-based interventions. Um, but the frontline worker is also uh, completely embedded in the mental health care system so that when an individual needs more specialized care, uh, the person is seamlessly referred to that provider. And I'm a peer support specialist here as well. And really, when you get down to the core of it, people just need somebody to talk to. You know, if you can relate to somebody that's going through a mental health crisis or substance use, being able to talk to a peer or somebody that's in the same boat it can have profound effects. Absolutely. It's not just talking to anyone, but talking to someone who has shared a similar experience as you that provides a tremendous sense of um, 
uh, the word that's escaping me here, a sense of recognition, a sense of identification uh, with that person. Um, obviously, in addition to that kind of uh, more more humane support that a peer support worker can provide, there's also specific techniques that peer support workers can learn to deliver, for example, behavioral activation uh, for mood problems or motivation enhancement for substance use problems. And there's a more generic kinds of skills like navigation, helping individuals navigate social welfare services or uh, often uh, the healthcare system itself. So I think peer support workers can play many different roles. Um, and in very similar ways, in, in developing countries, we use community health workers uh, who share something in common with their clients in that they share the same community and context, not necessarily the same health experience, but certainly the same context, the same language, etc. And then they can also provide multiple roles from being a navigator, being a supporter, being a friend, uh, or providing more specific psychological treatments. And you get right down to it, something that has virtually no cost is support groups within communities where people can come and, and share like experiences and develop a community around those things. So uh, it's not rocket science to, and I think a lot of us, especially in America, we try to make it so convoluted and so complicated to get this kind of care where if you break it down, a little goes a long way. Absolutely. A little does go a long way. And we, we, we really turn our framing of resources from the one that you hear far too often. We don't have enough resources and we need more resource. Typically, those are the sorts of pleas that you hear from the mental health community, and I agree with them, by the way. But the problem is, of course, that their view of how resources should be used is typically on expanding the mental health professional sector. The alternative framing is we do have resources, and they lie in the community. We've simply overlooked them. And what we need is more resource to strengthen the ability of that incredible community resource to be more effective in providing mental health care. And back to stigma, just being in a society where it has a stranglehold on a lot of people still, it's, it's getting better. But when, when people are ashamed of coming forward, ashamed of talking, not only does that keep somebody from getting well, but it keeps us as a group from addressing a catastrophic problem, really. Uh-huh. Absolutely. It does. So what would you say in 2019, and this is a very broad question, but just humor me, would be the state of global mental health? Is it getting better year by year? I would say the field of global mental health is in its adolescence. It's coming of age. Um, there is uh, enormous now recognition that mental health problems are universal causes of human suffering. Uh, there was a often held assumption, you know, 30 years ago, that mental health problems didn't occur in developing countries or amongst poor people. Poor people had far more important things to worry about than their mental health. Uh, the corollary being that mental health was a Western uh, condition, the product of consumerism associated with affluence, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this was the sort of um, uh, assumptions and myths that prevailed then. No one really says that anymore, except for maybe a few extreme voices. Um, that is a very big advance. Um, there used to be, a, uh, you know, a, assumption that mental health problems could only be treated by specialists. And because specialists were very few and very expensive, you know, we couldn't really reach out to people in low resource settings. We know now that that's not true. 
And we know as a consequence of all the science that there is enormous political will that's being built at the national level and at the global level to recognize mental health as an important cause for investment, uh, for resourcing. Uh, and I think that is a huge advance. Where we still have to go is to see how that political will translates into actual resources, and more importantly, how those resources are then utilized in a way that befits the evidence of community-based models of care, uh, as opposed to simply investing on, uh, on, on as it were, uh, you know, the, 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 the superstructure, the mental health superstructure. Well, why do you think it is that we have such a lack of professionals? Are there, are there people not majoring or, or getting degrees in mental health or psychiatry? And, and uh, why, why do you think that there's such a lack at this point? Well, I think for many reasons. First of all, the lack is slightly artificial in the U.S. Um, the reason why there's a lack is not because the absolute numbers are necessarily low, but because there's maldistribution. You know, most mental health professionals across the world prefer to live in, in, rich in, in the richer cities, uh, in, in large metropolitan areas. A very large proportion of them work only in the private sector and only take insurance paying patients. Um, so this is a really a commercial barrier. It's, it's, got, it's got less to do with actual numbers. Um, I think um, the other problem is because we don't have a community-facing uh, system in place, mental health uh, uh, professionals are essentially picking up the pieces of a broken system. Uh, many of the people that they see uh, in emergency rooms, for example, may never have reached an emergency room if the base of the system had been robustly built. Um, so we've actually created, in part, a real um, uh, you know, a bottleneck um, in terms of the availability and accessibility of mental health professionals. Uh, and I think what we really do need to do is rather than simply creating more mental health professionals, because there'll never be enough ultimately, um, is to really build the resources that can ensure that the existing mental health professionals can be used in a more efficient way. Kind of rounding things out, what do you want to leave us with on how we can improve the, the world as it relates to, to mental health and, and compassion and the way, we, the way we approach things? I'd say that we should start by removing from our ideas that mental health is someone else's problem. We, we need to reject the binary approach to mental health problems, that it's all about the person with a mental disorder, because each and every one of us in society has a mental health story, and it's central to who we are as human beings. Um, mental health problems can affect any one of us at any point in our life, either directly or through affecting people who are very close to us. And therefore, it really is everybody's business to make sure that we strengthen the mental health care systems. And by strengthening mental health care systems, I include investing in interventions that we know can help prevent the risk factors for mental health problems, uh, such as, for example, uh, and creating nurturing environments in childhood. Ultimately, I think we need to celebrate mental health as a universal public good, something that's one of our greatest personal assets, uh, something that is central uh, to who we are as human beings, to our ability as communities to be productive, to engage productively with one another, uh, and ultimately to demand from not just our governments, but from ourselves to be active players in a mental health care system. Wonderful. Well, I truly appreciate your time. I know you're you're very busy, but passionate about this as well. So uh, I'm honored to have you on and appreciate everything you do, truly making the world a better place. Well, thank you so very much. Thanks again. All right. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening. 
I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.